Isaiah chapter 59, rotten apples, that's where I'm going with this one. Sin not only distances man from God, it infects other people too. Galatians 5.9, put it this way, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. In fact, Paul said, do not be deceived. And then in Corinthians, he says, again, do not be deceived. This is especially good for you younger believers. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And old King James says, corrupts morals. The Greeks... To legitimize their sins, they just created gods that sinned. And it worked well for them for a lifetime. That's about it. In Proverbs, we read, fools mock at sin. God never mocks at sin, nor should we. So Isaiah, he continues preaching against the transgressions relished by the people. They loved their sin so much. The religion, too. I'm, get to, I'm going to get to a few Old Testament quotes from the prophets, but when I get to the one from Hosea, he really brings out how they just continue with their religion in spite of their disregard for what that religion stood for. These people apparently thought sin was no big deal. Religion was more important than your sin. Now, I'm not saying this as Christians that we should, you know, try and lay guilt on us because we're not in this category. We sin, we struggle with it, we love the Lord, and we don't make excuses for it. They weren't doing that. They were quite content with their hypocrisy. And they even went so far as to fault God for not answering their prayers because sin was no big deal again to them. So, verse 1, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. Well, nothing's outside of God's reach, and he's making that clear. But then he gives the punchline. And give, give me time on this second verse, because it really is not for true believers. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, remember... Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said through Paul, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He said, where sin abounded, grace did much more. Jeremiah said, the, the, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. This is directed at those who were playing God, playing with God, playing with serious things. Can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? There are consequences to this kind of behavior. So it's important to remember that Isaiah is addressing impenitent, not true believers, make-believers. And verses 3 through 8 will, will just make that patently clear. If this were said to devout believers, then we would all be crushed. And David writes about that in his Psalms. Lord, if you numbered our sins, who could stand? So, when we learn all the wicked things they were doing, we understand why their prayers did not reach heaven. Even in the New Testament, God gives outlines for prayers that are not answered. That he's just, I'm not, I don't want to hear it. Till you fix this, I do not want to hear it. Uh, you know, one of them was leave your, you know, you, you got a gripe with your neighbor, and you're, in the context of its statement, you're the guilty one, leave your offering there and go settle this. 
So this application is to those doing evil, disinterested in obedience, having no intention of conforming to God's word. And so the prophet says, God speaking through him, don't blame me for not blessing your evil. James writes it this way, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Where are the people that need to hear this? Well, they're out shopping, they're out doing this, they're out watching at home, making dinner, they're playing with their kids, they're just marrying and giving in marriage, they're going on with life apart from God. No, of course not everyone, but a large amount of people need to hear these things. That which separates man from God is impenitent sin. Um, I'll get to David when he was going through it in a minute, but Isaiah in the first chapter, re-reading, re-reading this, I I think I read this section last week. I know I did. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, remember now, you may make prayers as a Christian for years and God's not listening, but it's not because of your evil. Not because you did something. And if you did, he's going to point that out to you and you'll know it. But this is a different group. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So yeah, if the unbeliever says to the Christian, well, you're no different from me, he goes, yeah, I am. I'm just as weak as you, perhaps. But I'm not the hypocrite before the Lord, at least I hope we're not. And the hypocrite is the one that knows, knows he's up to no good and thinks he can get away with it. But we know as believers, there's nothing we can hide from God. Our thoughts and our intentions are known. They were known to him before we were born. And your sins have hidden his face from you. That's a lost benediction. Aaron was told by Moses, God giving the direction, when you send the people away, put this blessing on them. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, here, the Lord has hidden his face. He's not going to lift up his countenance. His face is not going to shine on them. Isaiah himself knew he wasn't perfect. He, we covered that in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. I am, a man who dwells of, I am a man of unclean lips who dwells amongst a people of unclean lips. So he knew he was not self-righteous. And then when he gets to chapter 64, he comes back and says, All our righteousness is like filthy rags. So it's a different category. Different class of people that he's addressing. And David, when he, was sin, when he had sinned with Bathsheba, and he went that almost a year without addressing this, He then writes about it after he does confess. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, my groanings all the day long. And so there he knew God's face was turned against him. God's judgment on a people determined to disobey is not the same thing. Well, that's where David David was in that category. He was in that camp, but he got out. And, and the reason why Isaiah is saying these things, so others can get out too. And there, I believe there were those Jews that would come in touch with Isaiah's teachings and consider their ways and repent. God's judgment on people determined to disobey, to disregard him, to disrespect him, all at the same time. And these were not the sins of the weak flesh, but of a rebellious make-believing heart that was self-exalted and in love with its own uh, passions. 
And so here's a barrage of Old Testament verses so that we, we see the prophets hammering this. It could have taken, probably could have taken one from each of the prophets, but we're, I'm going to major in the major prophet, Jeremiah, and give you that Hosea verse. Jeremiah 2.17, to the people he said, Have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? You know, a lot of people are going to hear that on Judgment Day. Jeremiah 4.18, your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness. Because it is bitter, because it reaches your heart. Jeremiah 5.25, your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. One of my favorites, Jeremiah 5.31. It's a favorite because it's just so... Right on, spot right on, getting right to human. I don't need a psychologist to tell me how people behave. The Bible tells me, and it is an easy fit. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. What are you going to do in the end? That's what he says. What will you do in the end? What are you going to do in judgment? Then here's the one from Hosea. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek Yahweh, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with Yahweh, for they have begotten pagan children. They're just living like the Old Testament doesn't even exist. Like the Bible doesn't even exist, except the part about this birth school makes those sacrifices. Anyway, I don't give you any anecdotes. It's, I, I think just so, verse 1 is just so, so powerful. So he says here at the bottom of verse 1, so that he will not hear, not listening. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Well, they cherished the things that God despised that were abominable to him. Verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. So we know by that, he's not talking to the righteous Jews, the remnant in the days. And and again, I think this section is in the days of Manasseh, late in Isaiah's ministry. uh, But it doesn't really matter. There was always the guilty around them. Shameless sin, their bloody hands, their dirty fingers, their lying lips, their twisted tongues. They were violent. They were manipulators. They were dishonest. They were sinister. They were dark. The audience that he is addressing. And there were many Jews who would listen to this from coming from Isaiah and say, Thank you, Lord. Somebody is speaking up against these things. And Isaiah was a man of the palace. He, he, was in high, he had high connections. And when the good kings were in place, he was right there. And when the bad kings were in place, he he would go against them. Verse 4, no one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Well, we know people like this, undisturbed by their sin, but yet bringing their herds and their flocks to the temple. Again, Isaiah chapter 1, because from the very beginning, he gets to the punchline in the first chapter. Um, you see a, a, a YouTube thing. This may kill you. Then you've got to wait 40 minutes into their talk about themselves before they tell you what it is. 
Only for you to find out that there was nothing. Well, Isaiah doesn't pull that one. In chapter 1, he gets right to it. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. Is he talking about congressmen and senators? Is, is he talking about the executive office? You hang out with a bunch of crooks. And you love it. You take bribes. And you want the kickbacks, the rewards. So metaphorically, he depicts the evil rulers here in this verse as pregnant women giving birth to sin. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Verse 5, they hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Well, what did the seeker-friendly church do with these kind of verses? They edited them out. This is what people need to hear, that human beings pull these kind of stunts before God and still expect that they're going to somehow survive in hell. That's going to be all right. In the Bible, ever since Genesis 3, snakes have come to represent the ultimate personification of evil. The eggs of vipers and the spider's web, they speak of the evil, the toxins that these people brought into society. They were rotten apples. They're good for nothing but rot- making other apples rotten. They're, uh, the eggs and the spider's web, they speak of life and death. I mean, we can see these things there. It doesn't take much. Not only sinning, but spreading sin. We have that all over the place today, on the internet, and just in society, and in the schools. I mean, it's just it's so awful. You don't even want to repeat what these people are doing. You know, a spider puts a lot of work into the web. And wicked people put a lot of work into doing evil. Verse 6 Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their work. Their works are the works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Well, they will stand before God without a covering. They will be stripped of everything. And the policies of the wicked, they're inadequate in covering the needs of life. When we look at the astounding, the, the nonsense the collapses taking place in cities, cities, the big cities of this country through these progressive policies, and that name progressive is a misnomer. Uh, it's, there's nothing progr- it was progressively evil, so maybe not. Anyway, San Francisco, Detroit, New York City, who'd want to live in those cities with what the people are doing? Well, the policies of their princes are bringing these things about. Well, go back to that, verse 7. I say that so we'll know that the other great men of God and great women of God had to put up with this nonsense too. Verse 7, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. This is gangster behavior. Ever prowling for criminal gains. Always scanning the horizon to see what they can snatch from somebody else. Psalm 34. 
He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way not good. He does not abhor evil. See, that's the difference between the righteous and the, one of the differences, the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous hate evil. And that definition of evil is handed to us by God. God tells us what evil is. Because we would just limit it to the things that offend us. God says, this is what offends me. These descriptions of their evil doings, verses 7 and 8, were used by Paul in chapter 3 of Romans to lay out, say, hey, humanity, you're all messed up. You need a Savior, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Verse 8 of Isaiah 59 now, the way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Well, the travelers in the hill country of Judea would avoid night travel, at least that's what I've read, because, of course, in that hill country, there were some slippery slopes, and at night you couldn't see them. And in that darkness, you could, you could die, <laughs> fall off a cliff. Um, and, and if you've been to Israel, you may have seen some of those places, some of the tourist sites, to get, uh, the caves of En Gedi. I mean, there's some very dangerous spots there. Anyway, uh, whoever takes their way shall not know peace. So don't get mixed up with their unjust ways. As a, you have to learn to spot wicked people from a distance. Uh, if not, you know, you get with the wrong crowd and you want them to accept you. And they say, hey, can you just drive us over here? Hey, sit out in the car and wait for us. And they don't tell you they're robbing the bank. And then you're the, you're the getaway guy, right? You, you go down with them. Uh, you just better learn that rotten apples, they uh, spoil the whole barrel. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. Now the prophet shifts and he's, he's lamenting their condition. He moves from the ways of the wicked to the response of the righteous that have to live in that society amongst the rotten apples that are trying to get to them. So he, he surveys and he summarizes the state of Judah's kingdom at the time he's writing this. He speaks as a citizen. Among the ruins of his beloved Judah, not by outsiders, by insiders. A fifth column of wickedness. Ruins caused by anti-Yahweh policies of that evil culture. And as stated in the preceding verses, but he's not done. So this, he starts this lamentation of the righteous over the deeds of the wicked. He says the outlook is bleak because of them. What a beautiful phrase, to have righteousness overtake you. But here, he says, nor does righteousness overtake us. We're not filled with the Spirit. Evil people do not care about waste or sorrow or the misery they cause. They're just not even interested in that. Um, they know it's evil, and they're, they've resigned to it. Verse 10, it's hard for good people to understand that, because we, we, we say, I wouldn't do that. Why would anybody do that? Well, they do do it. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men and 
desolate places. This is what the rotten apples have achieved in Judah. A nation where uh, that was given righteousness, but now they can't find righteousness because evil has overtaken the land. The politicians and the people who empowered them. Now, granted, they did not have voting booths to elect their leaders, but they did in their wicked hearts. They were fine with it all. The law had very clear instructions about handling the things that these wicked kings were doing. There are some times that the people did resist. Uzziah, the good king, he overstepped, man. He was not supposed to step into the tabernacle of God to offer incense. That was exclusively for the priest. He couldn't say, well, I feel I have a calling on my life. They were about to take his life. They withstood him with weapons. And had God not struck him on the head with leprosy, it would have gone violent. But that's an example of the righteous people standing up. Well, that means there were other times that they didn't stand up under kings like Ahaz and Manasseh. No, because they really liked these wicked policies. No, good, this administration is going to change the law. You keep your change. Anyway, the, um, uh, they didn't mind trampling the scripture. And uh, they, they committed themselves to their evil kings, while the remnant stood firm, but the remnant were marginalized. What are so few amongst so many? Uh, you, you know, you just there weren't, just weren't enough righteous people to achieve anything. When he mentions here that uh, the, the noonday and the twilight, they should have been able to see. They had the light of the law. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. They had that scripture already. But they couldn't see. They didn't want to see. Moses called this long ago. Deuteronomy 28.28 uh, is going to take Deuteronomy 28 and 29, but verse 28 is one for us to, to commit to memory. Here's verse 28. Yahweh will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart, and you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually. And no one shall save you. Well, that's what happened to them. But let me back up a little bit. I said that was a verse to remember, but that's not. And I don't remember the verse to remember. So maybe I'll come to it later, but that's not the verse I wanted. Oh, no, that is it. That is it. See, even my errors are correct. The Lord will strike you with madness. That's the one. (laughs) So let me put that in our language. The Lord's going to let you go crazy. That's what that means. And we're seeing this. We're seeing crazy people in government with all the power in the world. This is craziness. So don't feel like, man, what is happening to us? Well, the same thing that was happening to other righteous people, like Hosea and Isaiah. Manasseh, if he was the king, whether he was or not, the righteous did suffer under Manasseh, and I've been bringing him up. And so now I'm going to give you his fall and then his salvation, which kind of just almost irks the righteous. Second Chronicles 33.9, Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh had destroyed before the children of Israel. Now, the, what the chronicler is saying is the people that under Joshua that pushed out those Canaanites, God listed the things they were doing. 
and said, don't think you're better than them. They're doing this stuff. Don't you do it. And that's what this reference there. Uh, then 2 Kings 21.16, Moreover, Manasseh shed much, very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of Yahweh. And there's the rotten apple. He made others sin. But also he, filled very much, he spilled very much innocent blood. No wonder the righteous couldn't stand. No wonder they were marginalized. Second Chronicles 33.10 And Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. No, because they would kill those who would come and tell them God's word or persecute them in some other form. But then, by the time we get to Second Chronicles 33, what has happened is the Assyrians came in and they took him captive. And they put hooks in his, likely his archaeologists have discovered in, uh, evidence of the Assyrians practicing putting hooks in people's noses with chains and leading them uh, into captivity. Well, that's what they did with King Manasseh. Again, 55 years he was king. Not all those years was he wicked. He did, and that's what I'm getting to. Well, anyway, the Assyrians come and they put the hook in his nose and they cart him off to Babylon because the Assyrians at that time ruled Babylon too uh, until Babylon kicked back and overthrew them. But uh, anyway, at that time, in his misery, we pick it up, Second Chronicles 33, 13, he prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh received him his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew Yahweh was God. And he goes on to then purge the land, but the damage was so extensive, it just really didn't take, and God brings that up later. But, what an amazing event. If a rotten man like him can get saved, then we should never lose hope, no matter how rotten we think someone has become. Uh, This is the opposite of verse 2, where Isaiah said, your your sins have separated you. God's not listening. Well, here, God heard the prophet, I mean, the, the king, because his heart was genuine. He called out, he supplanted, he asked God to help him, and God did. The most powerful force in life without Christ is the blinding power of sin. But Christ can overcome that. Unfortunately, most people just don't care to have to, to avail themselves. In the dark ages of European history, uh, it's better to say dark ages than middle ages, because they were dark. And uh, they, they, they just didn't care about what God said, even though they used his name all the time or spoke of him. How different the history will be for the righteous in heaven. Paul writes to the Colossians, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his glory. That convoy into heaven, that conveying into heaven speaks, doesn't reminds me of Lazarus the beggar, and the angels took Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. Well, the thief on the outlaw on the cross and every all those in, left in Sheol when Christ died, he took them into heaven. He set the captives free. That's what we have to look forward to. Uh, verse 11, continuing to describe the condition of the righteous 
We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation. But it is far from us, verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. Well, the verse 11, the righteous sighing and, and grumbling over the ruin Blessing, blessings, the ruined, God wanted to bless Judah, but they were determined not to be blessed by him. They had a better way to do it. This happens to people, churchgoers, you know, uh, they love the Bible stories and the studies and all, but after a while it doesn't achieve the goals that they had set for themselves and they're done with it. The wicked, they hated the one who could bless them especially when he stopped blessing them because of their wickedness. Now, Isaiah is including himself in this prayer. The remnant was helpless amongst the lovers of sin. Well, there's a mouthful. But this is the same thing that Daniel does in chapter, in chapter 9 of his prophecy. Ezra does it in chapter 9, and Nehemiah does it in his chapter 9. In each case, those men offer up prayers to God on behalf of, of the people, and because they were not self-righteous, they did not pray like the Pharisee that Jesus spoke about, I'm not like this Pharisee. They prayed with sobriety. They said, they, well, of course they weren't as bad as these people, but they also knew they weren't, they were, you know, as Isaiah said, a man of unclean lips. And there's very much to gain from that. Those are sermons right, the series of sermons right there. They identified with the sinners. As Christ did when he went to be baptized and as when he was crucified, though he never sinned. So Isaiah 6, 5. So I said in the presence of God, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Christian humility is the recognition of who you are before the throne of God. I mean, once if, if, if when you pray, especially in corporate prayer, if you pray as though God is there in the room, I, I think it's a much more, it's more rich in prayer. You're speaking to him, he's right there. And uh, uh, just that's what I do, at least. And um, anyway, I don't want to toot my horn. <laughs> Got others to do it for me. Uh, Anyway, verse 13, um, in trespassing, the, yeah, the only way to stop that is to flatten the tires. <laughs> in tres- <laughs> in, anyway, I hope it's not one of you. And if it is, it's okay. I just don't want to make you feel bad any more than I've already done. Verse 13, in transgressing and lying against Yahweh and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Man, he's, he's got them. He knows who these guys are. And, he, you know, God forsakes those who are determined to forsake him. And it's not easy. So we'll go back to David. When he committed his egregious crimes, God did not forsake him. David, he gave David space. He would have if David not eventually responded. Well, how much time does it take? Well, that's between God and the, the, the sinner. 
And for David, again, the best we can calculate, it was probably almost a year. And, uh, and, and you know, he tells us about that process of, of sin unto mercy. Verse 14, justice is turned back, the righteous stands afar off, for truth has fallen in the street, and iniquity uh, cannot enter. Imagine that. It's a black hole. A black hole is said to have so much gravity that even light cannot escape from it. There are people like that. There are countries like that. Uh, there are a bunch of countries on my not, do not go to. There are a bunch of cities on my do not go to list. I mean, look what they've done with San Francisco. San Francisco is a beautiful piece of property. But who wants to go there? I mean, just it's, what they've done with it is horrible. Uh, but that's just one place. Verse 15. So truth fails... And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Well, if you're ignorant of Yahweh, maybe you grew up in a society that talks about Yahweh, but you, you still know nothing about him. Because that possible? Well, absolutely. How many people grow up in a church and know nothing about the Bible? And they go to a Bible teaching church and everything just starts percolating and turning on for them. And, oh, can I be baptized? I was baptized as a kid. I didn't know what that was. Yeah, well, it's the same in Israel. You had people, it was this, Yahweh's name was thrown around, but there was no witness for him, not much of it. And so in such a culture as this that's run by rotten apples that is upheld by rotten apples the first casualty is truth that's where the rot begins when truth is slain and isaiah chapter 3 he covers this this right there in isaiah chapter 3 without truth society the goodness of society society collapses uh, it may look okay on the surface um, but it's not and he who departs from evil here in verse 15 makes himself a prey. This is a powerful statement. Good people punish for pursuing good. He who departs from evil makes himself a target. You know, many drinkers are insulted if you don't drink with them. Well, we're going to the bar. I don't drink. I don't want to go. Oh, you got to hear that. But if they said, well, we're going to get coffee. I don't want one. Okay, see you later. How come it's like that? Why can't they be that way? We're going to get Twizzlers. I don't want any Twizzlers. Oh, you're evil. Well, that one might make sense. But Peter talks about this in Revelation. I'm sorry. <laughs> he does not. Testing, testing one, two. First Peter chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation Speaking evil of you. You don't run off to, to, to sin. They're going to badmouth you. Bring it on as your response. You younger Christians, it's, a, it's an honor. It's a combat ribbon to say that, yeah, they tempted me and I did not take it. I got away from them. They corrupt morals. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Uh, it's serious stuff. Amos the prophet, who wrote in the earlier days of Isaiah, but to the north, he says, the prudent keeps silent at that time, for it is an evil time. So they couldn't wear those 
make a great America great hats in certain neighborhoods. In that's what it amounted to. Certain places you wear, you have a certain sticker on your car. Somebody's going to key your car or attack you. That's how what Amos is talking about. The evil had to wise up, wise as serpent, harmless as doves. So not only had public justice warped, but public opinion warped with it, and the individuals are accountable. They, you know. The sins they did two by two, they're going to answer one by one. For, they're going to answer for. So if and I, and I will add, especially to you youth, and to for us all, if you have convictions, you will have critics. I don't mean opinions; I mean convictions. You know this is it. You this is you. You know this is right or wrong, whatever your view is. You're going to make you're going to make enemies. Um, if, and if you need more information on that, you come because sometimes I feel like I wrote the book on it. Uh, it's you just you know people don't want you to stand your ground when it is your place to stand your ground. Well, anyway, then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. What a wonderful segue into the next verse. Because what is what did they, did they honestly think God saw these things and he chuckled? Well, look at that. They're stealing from each other. Look at that. The, right, the righteous are terrified at being righteous. And of course not. Verse 16, here comes the segue. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness. It sustained him. So this segue is radical. And it is anthropomorphic, it is prophetic proper. In other words, he's speaking about a future event as though it already happened. And they do this, these prophets, they do it quite a bit. The past tense to them is in the present tense, they're that sure of it. Um, he was wounded for our transgressions, and by his stripes we are made whole. He's speaking, you know, 700 years before the event as though it happened already. And that's, I'm, of course, taking that from... Isaiah 53. And so now he is talking about the Messiah. He's going to move Messiah, the people, the wicked. He's going to float around with this. And the, the, the giving us the scripture in a puzzle seems to us uh, disappointing, but it shouldn't. And I believe the reason why it's like this is because scripture interprets scripture and the scripture has to speak to every generation in every culture in every language over the millennium. And it does that. And it does it through uh, imagery and symbols and the puzzles that can be put together and you come up with this full picture. So don't be, you know, it's, this is not like reading a novel where, you know, you can just, oh, that makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense, but it's not always on the surface. And this is one of them. So the translators have properly marked the pronouns in capital casing in verse 16 to signify that it is a divine character. And we know this to be Messiah. So what is saying? he's saying is God noticed the amount of men who had succumbed to irrational and rottenness of sin. And it's startling from our perspective. Here's the anthropomorphism. anthropomorphism is that they're, they're saying, okay, let me... Let me kind of, like the prophet or God is saying, 
let me act like I'm a human just for a moment so you can understand what, I, what I'm seeing. I'll put it in your language. So if God were to say, I'm guessing, he does not guessing. He doesn't have to ever guess, but he's putting it in a language that we might, we might understand. And so uh, here we have this. Um, he, he, these irrational, rotten characters in the kingdom of Judah. This is crazy. I can't find a righteous man. Well, of course, it's not a, a, an absolute statement because he has Isaiah. And Isaiah is making the statement. And he's an intercessor, as were the other prophets. And that's how the puzzle goes. Those courageous enough to intervene were not strong enough. They were marginalized. And as I mentioned from Amos 5.13 and verse 4 and verse 10 and verse 14 of this Isaiah 59. So this has to do with higher events and over the ages, finding those who will stand against evil in an evil society. Uh, are there any good apples left in this barrel? This is a kind of approach. I'm surprised there are none concerning the wicked that he is addressing. And if you're listening to this in Isaiah's day, you're either that remnant that's going, Amen! I wish I could preach this at my job! Or you're one of the wicked, and you're either getting offended, or you're, you're being blessed and con convicted. So the Lord, Yahweh, saw none amongst the sinners who could undo or reverse the offenses that they had committed, the damage of sin. No one could reverse the damage that Manasseh had committed. It went into Josiah's reign and then beyond, and it led up to the Babylonian captivity. And God tells us that. And so, um, where are the intercessors? Well, let's fast forward, because he's going to repeat this in Isaiah 63, verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. And so there's a, a scripture interpreting scripture and telling us that this 16th verse is now Yahweh. And he is addressing not only the evil of the time, but all sinners through all the ages. He is the solution. And that's where this is going. Uh, the, the anthropomorphianism is, is to point out the magnitude of mankind's plight. We have another picture of how awful things are. Revelation 5, this is John uh, writing about the scene in heaven. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And so this, we come back to this, therefore my own arm brought salvation. And uh, so no go-between champion unless God gets involved. There's no solution for the rottenness of man Without God. And he is the savior. The all seeing eye of God. He rested on what was going on and said. Huh. Look at that. No intercessor among these rotten apples. And they've silenced my people. I'm going to have to do this. So no human arm could uplift sin. And the, the, the fallen state of the race. And it's spiritual insanity. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for him. And this is, of course, uh, the, the Godhead at work and not fulfilled in Isaiah's day, which is uh, part of putting the puzzle together. There were reformers who could reform 
like King Josiah. But Redeemer, there was none. And that would, that would have to wait. The hopeless condition of the human race under the long tyranny of sin, not only amongst the Jews, but all people. And so his own um, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. It is the strength of God. It is God looking at the end result uh, when he says he shall see the travail, travail of his soul and be satisfied. In other words, he's telling us, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to do it. And he has. God has every right to fill eternity with those who love him. It's just going to take a long time to do it. From our perspective, it has taken, uh, you know, since Adam till now. God is still populating eternity with souls that are saved under these conditions. Because you look at this life and you say, boy, this thing is rigged. It's all messed up. I mean, you just can't, you just can't be left alone. At some point, no matter what you do, you're going to be miserable. Guaranteed. Who's doing this? Well, the wicked will get bitter at God and blame him. But the righteous will say, God knows what he's doing. I have faith. I trust in his character. If this is allowed, he's got a better reason. And to him, it's worth it. And therefore, because he is worthy to me, it's worthy. It's, it's worth it. I'll, I'll do it. I don't like it. I hate it at times. But when the smoke clears, I'll be standing by the strength of the Lord. And that's what the whole Bible is, is really about. And so verse 17, for he, again, this is Messiah, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Man, you got to love this. This is, this is the, the Messiah. And, and he is, he, he's, uh, he's clad for war. Paul twice borrowed from this imagery of Isaiah to stir up believers to do the same thing in service. With first, uh, we know of Ephesians 6, but how many are mindful of 1 Thessalonians 5, 8? Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. And so here's this picture of, of God with body armor on, and the saints are supposed to uh, put the kit on also in mental gear to carry out the king's business in a fallen world. You stay on this verse a long time, but we've got to get rolling. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, this is a striking image. Uh, Daniel saw the uh, striking image, but, you know, with the white hair and the, just, you know, the, the, the bronze and just the striking image of the Lord is God speaking to us. Uh, in this imagery, uh, depending on what is going on at the time. Well, verse 18, according to their deeds, according, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands, he will fully repay. And so those that were doing all this evil, Isaiah is saying to you, look, don't say you've not been warned. This is Foreboding language, repay, fury, adversaries, recompense, enemies. This is retaliation. It bristles with retaliation, retribution, and fullness. He will fully repay. Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I know that's a hard one, right? We... We want because it's only difficult for us Christians because we want to see it instantly. We, it's like it's like a, like 
if we could just activate the vengeance of the Lord like we, we, we do a click pen. Like, click, click, over you. And so put that, you know, how many people would not get saved? All of them by that, by that tactic. Well, the coastlands here, that means the Gentiles too, every all far-reaching. But God's gonna, he's going to straighten it all right. He's going to clear the way on earth for kingdom converts. Verse 19, that's where we're going with this. So shall they fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, which would be the east. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of Yahweh will lift up a standard against him. Well, this hasn't happened yet, and so, this, you know, as I mentioned, he's transitioned now to the future and the, the Messianic age. And, but the, 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 the Old Testament doesn't tell us, okay, this is his first coming, this is his time on earth, okay, now this is his death, and this is his second. It's there, but you've got to put the puzzle together. And once it comes together, you say, man, you can't miss this. How do they miss this? How do the Jews not see this? <laughs> so the next time you think, I don't like this puzzle thing, then ask yourself, then how come you see things and you can't believe others can't see them? So it works. Well, back to verse 19. This kingdom age is what he's talking about. His glory, the Messiah's visible presence. I saw the glory of the Lord sitting on the throne from 6.3, Isaiah 6.3. But there are two alternate renderings of this, this uh, verse 19. And I like both of them. You can read, it's where you put the comma. When the enemy comes in, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a, a standard against him. So it's the enemy coming in, and the Lord, like a flood, coming against the enemy. Or, you can see the enemy coming in like a flood. The second rendering. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. They both work. And they're both true. Uh, it's like just one of the verses that God says, have it your way. Because they both apply. Now, this second coming of the Lord, coming against an enemy, coming in like a flood, and then the Lord responding like a flood, a counter flood. Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39 is Armageddon. We've had Ezekiel 33 and the world going crazy. And I believe we have then the period of Antichrist, and then Antichrist goes nuts, and Isaiah 39 says, well, this is how I'm going to shut him down. Now, this arguing over end times is not necessary. You just agree with me, and you won't have to argue. One thing I'm going to love about heaven is I won't have to debate any theology. I'll just seem like, told you. <laughs> I plan to visit every Calvinist I know in heaven. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know why I was right? Because it was foreordained from the foundations of the world that I'd be right, and not you. Anyway, uh, Ezekiel 39, verse 4, You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, speaking about the enemy, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you, I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort, and to beast of the field to be devoured. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will lift his standard. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will lift his standard. Either way, it works. Zechariah 14.9 And Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. 
In that day it shall be Yahweh is one and his name one. He is king over all the earth. There's no more enemies. And when they flash up again after Satan is let loose that second time, that will be done in a blink. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says Yahweh. Well, out of Zion comes Jesus of Nazareth, our Redeemer. Uh, this is why one of the reasons why the promised land is so special to us. And remember to pray for the Jews, um, to beat the snot out of the enemy. <laughs> we, we can kind of do that on this one because they're going to do it. So until, until we're out of here, and then it's going to be different. Uh, and, but that's what's needed, that justice would prevail. Um, we're certainly not promoting violence. We're promoting what is necessary to stop the evil, and in this case, violence is what's going to get it done. Uh, you, what you, you're, not going to, you're not going to take them out to Subway sandwiches and make a peace deal. I sure hope they purge that place. Okay. Um, Today was a rough day for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, so don't, don't let our guard down. Anyway, uh, and I would add, there are Jewish Christians in the IDF fighting, and some of them are posting YouTube videos on what's going on, and they're saying they're sharing Christ with their tr- fellow, with their comrades. They're, they're, they're um, telling them that they're Christians in America and throughout the world, praying for them, loving them. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite nice to see that taking place. There's a lot of scripture moving around with that. Anyway, the king of the Jews, the God of creation, the Holy One of Israel, that's this redeemer that will come out of Zion. We know him as Jesus the Messiah. God is ever ready to receive penitent sinners. That's where this is going. Paul identifies this character because he quotes this verse in Romans 11 and he says it's Jesus. You have to take it with Romans 11.26 with Romans 11.32. I'll take verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Uh, So today the Jewish people, they are still God's people, but they're not a cleansed people. And that's going to happen. Uh, anyway, they will receive a new covenant, and with that, a new heart. Verse 21, For as for me, says Yahweh, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon them, my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants. Descendants, says Yahweh, from this time forevermore. Well, the descendants here are the descendants of this Redeemer. And who might that be? Well, Isaiah 53 talked about that to us. 53.10. There is the spiritual offspring of Christ. We're it. We're not the only ones. All the believers that have come. The apostles. And so to overcome the ages, this prophecy, uh, again, kind of, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cryptic. But but, uh, guess Scripture is its own interpreter. Well, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that covenant has been made. They just not received it. They will. Ezekiel 36, uh, yeah, 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And their heart as a people is stone against 
the Christ at this present time. Almost done. These descendants that are spoken of here in verse 21, and their descendants' descendants, are the, uh, the disciples, of, again, of, of Christ. And this links it to Genesis 3.1, uh, sorry, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, which is then brought up again in Genesis 22.19. I'll leave it for you to look at. And then Isaiah 53.10. So if you want to see where I'm getting these parts of the puzzle, there you go. Um, so, again, Jesus will rid the earth of rotten apples in the end, and he will use his church to make converts as we move forward. Well, let's pray. Our Father, it's just never can get enough of your word. We who believe, we just always want more. And this is your doing in our hearts. You have lit the candle and the lamp, and we are very, very grateful. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.